Welcome to The Writer's Edge, a podcast exploring writing across the disciplines from the arts to the sciences and everything in between. We're coming to you from Shark Tank number two in the NSU Writing and Communication Center on the fourth floor of the Alvin Sherman Library in Davie, Florida. Today we're talking with NSU student filmmakers about their award-winning documentary film project titled The Halls of Power, which follows one of the youngest candidates to ever run for the Florida State Legislature as he works to make a difference in his community. Bianca, Graciel, and Janae, welcome and thank you for talking with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having us. So first, just tell us a little bit about yourselves, kind of who you are and what you study here at NSU. And we'll uh, start with Graciel. Hi, well, good evening, everyone. I'm Graciel Pesada, and I'm a senior at NSU, currently majoring in communications with a concentration in digital media production. Uh, Welcome. Thank you. Uh, Bianca. Hi, everyone. So I'm Bianca Vucetich, and I am also a senior at NSU. I am also studying communications with a digital media concentration, as well as a minor in marketing, business, and film. Because, you know, film is basically my extreme hobby to the point of making a whole documentary. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Welcome. And uh, Janae. Hi, everyone. My name is Janae Joseph. I recently graduated with a degree in history and two minors in digital media productions, and the other is in film. Well, excellent. And you all have some diverse backgrounds, but of course, a shared interest because you actually collaborated on a project. You, you know, you work together to close a genre that I don't think many people I know, even students in our digital media program, have created a documentary film. Uh, even those who have worked with film and video, you know, haven't really taken on anything as, I think, serious and as extensive as a, as a documentary. But the first question we always ask people is really whether they identify with this idea of being a writer. Maybe that is a term you identify, maybe not, but we always try to ask people, like, is that something you think of yourself as? Or is there a better term for kind of who you are and what you do? Personally, I'd definitely say uh, filmmaker over writer, especially with this project that we did together. I personally am not very good at writing, uh, creative writing even, and with this kind of format, it allowed us to follow a story that already existed. In editing, we really put things together chronologically and trying to get people to see how what order works best for what we want to show. However, it all comes from a real life story instead of writing something down. So personally, I would say, especially relating to this project, a filmmaker your documentarian is definitely someone I would relate to more, give my role. Gotcha. So, Graciela or Janae, is, is writer something you identify with, or is there, again, a better term? Well, I would say that I concur with Bianca, um, specifically within the context of our project. Um, I would identify more so with the term of filmmaker or content creator. Even though writing was a huge aspect or part of the film, it's just, you know, you, have, you always have to come up with interview questions and also, like, when we're working on um, the triage structure, which we can discuss that later, but, you know, definitely writing was a major part of the project. So, but, yeah, definitely we'll identify more so with the term of filmmaker or content creator. Gotcha. So, I would consider myself a writer, and I also think, Bianca and Graciel, you guys should give yourselves a little bit more credit, <laughs> especially <laughs> with the work that we've kind of just all put into creating this film together just at all stages of 
the process. Like Graciel said, we had to write the questions and also conduct the research that was related to the project and going out and shooting the film and kind of just capturing other people's stories. We had to reinterpret them in a way mm -hmm. where it would make sense within the general context of Elijah's life and also the movement that he's currently involved in in progressive politics. And for the last part of that, I remember hearing somewhere that the editor is usually in charge of the last draft of the script. And I can confidently say that we've had many drafts of the script that we would call this documentary <laughs> <laughs> that we would have to edit down. And it's not really writing in the traditional sense when you think about filmmaking. It's kind of just like you're putting together a story. That's the way how I kind of just see it. And even before this film, I would consider myself a writer. Not really in the creative writing film. I would consider myself more as like an ideas person. But for everything else that's like reference related, I would consider myself a writer. Sure. And I think that sounds very appropriate coming from someone with a background in history. You know, that history is the story we put on all these facts, but we, we need to tie them together, right? So that, that seems very natural to do in some ways. Yeah, definitely. And it's part of the reason why I pursued this degree as well. You kind of just get to hear so many different stories from so many points in time. And I kind of get overwhelmed whenever people ask me what my favorite period of history is because I can't really name one. <laughs> but just being able to like hear other people's stories and think like, wow, this is real or this is like somewhat real. That was part of the appeal for me. So for people listening, like you've mentioned kind of the subject of your documentary, but can you really kind of describe it? I believe it's called The Halls of Power. Describe the project and tell us how did it come about? Probably the three of us had taken production classes together, particularly within uh, when COVID hit during that pandemic season. But then ultimately, we ended up taking a documentary filmmaking class, actually, last fall with Professor Alex Bordino. And, you know, the main project for that class was to come up with a short documentary about 10 minutes long. And as a class, we were supposed to come up with topics and then suggest them to the class. And then it just so happens that Janae ended up suggesting covering um, the story of Elijah Manley. And, and that's how the project came about in that aspect. So who is Elijah Manley? Elijah Manley is basically someone who's young, who's about 22 years old. He started running for office actually when he was 17 years old, and he actually ran for school board, and that's how he first got involved in politics. Part of our research was that we saw the multiple appearances that he made to school board meetings, and at the beginning, he started making these appearances when he was as young as 14 or 15 in hopes that concerns of the student body would be heard by the school board. He saw that a lot of his peers, they didn't have enough to eat or they had outdated resources and textbooks that the school board just wasn't providing for them. And these were the same issues that he would have to reiterate over and over and over again for every single meeting. And this was part of our inspiration for the opening scene of the film where you really get to know who Elijah is and 
why he's fighting for his community. In essence, his start of making those school board appearances and then later running for office. We're kind of just showing that as a young person, you can get politically involved in many different ways. It's not just voting. It's not just organizing, but you can also run for office or you can do something as simple as talking with others in your community. So I feel like that's the main reason why we decided to focus on Elijah's story specifically, because it embodies a lot of young people who want to get involved in politics. And he had run for school board, you said, and this time, what was he running for? So for this time, he was not running for school board. Actually, he ran for the Florida State Legislature in a special election. Mm -hmm. And this film focused on him running in that special election. And then when he started to kick off the latest election during the primaries, it's a bit confusing when I say it out (laughs) loud. But when you watch it within the film, you not only get a sense of this is someone who's running and organizing within his community, but you also get a sense of his background, where he came from. He grew up homeless and him growing up and his background pretty much informed his politics and the policies that he advocated for. In recent years, he has run for the Florida legislature in hopes of being the youngest person elected to the legislature. And that's been his fight so far. And this is in Broward County, correct? Yes. All right. Excellent. Yeah, that gives us, I think, a good sense of both the local interests, but also in Florida among the school board. That's really, I guess, just an important aspect of it. Just kind of shows the importance of those kinds of races up to, of course, you know, state senate and such. But I'm glad that people are engaged at that level. Thinking about the kinds of roles that you had in putting together this project, I know the IMD page for the project. I think it lists you as kind of co-directors and co-writers, but. I assume that you had to take on specific tasks or roles, right? That you can't edit in real time together and that someone has to operate the camera. So I guess like you had these kind of primary roles that were shared, but did you take on sort of secondary roles and, you know, divide up the work in some way? It's, it's interesting to bring that up because I was just thinking the other day of how impossible it is to do at least post-production collaboratively. If you do it, by yourself in one computer and that's what we struggled with a lot in the beginning when this was an assignment at first because we were all editors i think janae more than anyone because especially in the very beginning she had it all on her laptop mostly from uh, the computers in class that was transferred there so after learning from the experience from the class version because we have multiple versions of this documentary one we had to learn how to edit collaboratively And what we did do, because we turned basically uh, about 10 minutes to 40 minutes of a documentary, we had to split it up. Hmm. And sometimes we would do individually, of course, because it's hard to meet up. But we did our very best, thanks to organizing and some people sacrificing time after a night. It was Graciel who would be working all day and then coming down to work on the project with us in the classroom. It would be three of us on our own computers working on different acts, the three-act structure of the documentary. So, and editing, I would say that's how exactly it was split up. It was still very collaborative, you know. If Graciela had something to show us, we would see on her computer. If I had a question, you know, Janae could just look over. That's how it was in the uh, post-production aspects. However, especially in the IMDb credits, 
you see that we have everyone's also co-producer and, and co-directors because it's basically started with all three of us saying, yeah, let's do this together. Why not? And the rules of that is Janae is the one who found Elijah Manley. And she also provided a lot of help with the equipment regarding actually shooting. It was also more or less Janae on some nights, Janae and I on some days, and Janae, me, and Graciel on like interview shoots, especially with Graciel backing up with audio, for example. Mm. It is much easier <laughs> shooting with three people because especially when you have two different angles, so it's two different cameras and you have to make sure that two sources of audio are clear. It's much better with multiple people. However, in the cinematography aspects, especially with field documentaries, we had to, for example, I, I shot with my iPhone a lot of the shots, especially the Pride Parade shots. Um, the cinematography there is just me on my iPhone running around <laughs> shooting <laughs> things instead of like trying to capture audio compared to our sit-down interviews where you know we're all more involved together instead of one on the camera, one on an iPhone running around. And I think Janae mentioned the writing aspect pretty well in the sense, I didn't think of it that way. It's, it's very interesting, um, especially with her inclination toward history of stories that already exist there and how to implement it ourselves to tell it visually. And yeah, I think all of us were pretty collaborative on that one. You know, we had back and forths, of course, on like, okay, what should be in Act 3? How should we transition from here to here? What's more impactful for the audience? What's something we really want to show? A lot of different ideas. And thankfully, there's three of us, too. It's an odd number. So <laughs> two of us had opposing <laughs> ideas. There was always a third. So um, in, in terms of writing, it was definitely, or, you know, just post-editing as, as, you know, the most writing aspect of this film in, in, so far, it's definitely been a collaborative effort. And for cinematography and editing, highly, highly appreciative of my teammates here. It was, it was really difficult for all these things to be under one person. Power to those people out there who are able to do that. But with everyone here working together, I think we definitely evened out most things and people were more skilled than others, of course, or had like computer accessibility or time to do certain shots. I'm glad you draw attention to the ways in which, you know, even with writing, I mean, writing becomes sort of collaborative writing is becoming easier, right? You know, we jump into Google Doc and we share things with OneDrive. But yeah, film just seems like such a different kind of production, like you said, with the editing that just the fact that you split it up is interesting to me because I, I would probably be like, no, like that would make it difficult to feel like I couldn't move something to the beginning or something. But I think that's the kind of strategies that people develop to work in these kinds of situations. Did you end up bringing in anyone else to help? Often you look at a film and there's like, you know, 800 people at the end of it. And not that you couldn't do it with just the three of you, but, you know, did you ever, hey, little brother, you know, come and just hold this microphone for me. Like, are there other kind of behind the scenes people or is it really just you learning how to do everything? No, there really weren't. It was just the three of us <laughs> for, the, for the majority of the project, basically. And there were occasions on which, you know, we did have to kind of divide the work due to the fact that maybe only two people could be at a specific location or interview or event that was happening. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we just had to work with two people. Sometimes there were the, uh, all three of us. And obviously that Bianca mentioned, he made it better and more smoother when the three of us were there because we were able to even uh, transport the equipment. 
um, double check everything and make sure that, like Bianca mentioned, we have two sources of audio that if we were filming with different cameras that settings were the same, that we had different angles and, and mm-hmm. things like that. So, but for the most part, it was just a deal. It just reminded me of a couple stories of us just roping people in every now and then <laughs> to help us with certain scenes. So, for the very first interview that we did with Elijah, I remember we were all setting up and we had two cameras. It was my Sony A6400 camera and it was also the Canon camera. I think it was the T5 or the T6, but it was a pretty old Canon camera. And we realized that we would have to light from both angles so that both angles would look nice. Mm-hmm. But Elijah wasn't there yet. And we wanted to have everything set up as much as possible so that he wouldn't have to wait as long for us to start the interview. So my mom was in the room. <laughs> and she was basically the stand-in <laughs> for Elijah. Mind you, my mom is six two, And we had no idea how tall Elijah was. <laughs> so... We set up everything. We set up the camera. We set up the lights with my mom as the stand-in. Then Elijah comes in, and he's almost six inches shorter than my mom. (laughs) (laughs) So we basically had to rearrange a bunch of things and move things around. And that probably took like an extra five to ten minutes to do so. (laughs) But aside from that, I don't think we would have gotten this project done without the folks over at Student Media, SGTV, like their help and also their feedback on the project, our peers within our class as well, their insight, it really helped us in trying to put the film together in terms of audio. (laughs) Paulina, if you're listening out there, (laughs) um, was a lifesaver in terms of us trying to salvage some of the audio that we were trying to edit in post and just a lot of little things here and there for even a lot of the people that were uncredited. They were just a really big help in just putting this film together. And another thing, when Bianca was talking about how we were all sharing credits for the film, it also reminded me of something that Professor Bordino said a couple weeks ago about how we just developed this non-hierarchical structure in terms of making this film because we pretty much all shared the ideas. We all shared the knowledge and the research that we had from this film. It wasn't necessarily that one person was a director and we would have to listen to them like every step of the way, because inevitably for that one person, they would probably make a mistake or maybe they would have an idea that's not really fleshed out that well. And it would be better to have at least a second opinion on. So I feel like all three of us really balanced each other out in terms of the ideas that we put out there and the methodology that we had in implementing each of those ideas. And so I feel like that's what made our filmmaking process very unique, especially for this project. That's really interesting you say that because I feel like that's exactly why we encourage people to come into the Writing and Communication Center, that you kind of need that feedback, you need those perspectives, you need you know someone to bounce ideas off of. So it seems like it would be a lot of pressure, but also very difficult to do it on your own. You know, besides the like the technical aspect of it of needing to you know, handle multiple cameras and things like that. 
And you have gotten feedback, I think, from various you know, screenings of the film in which it has won awards. So congratulations. Thank you. And for those of us not familiar with that process, you know, after the film is done or a, you know, a version of it is done, what happens to it? Like, what's the process of showcasing films or distributing it or premiering it? Like, how does that happen? I mean, initially we, we did the class version, right? You know, the point of the class was to make a six minute documentary. It was just an assignment for class. And then we were like, we have a lot we want to put in. Can we extend it to 10 minutes? Uh, 13 minutes? Yeah, sure. No problem. Okay, perfect. That was the first official version, our 13 minute documentary for the class. And then we wanted to turn it into the undergraduate film festival at Nova. Um, it is open to anyone. It's as long as you're able to apply properly. Um, I think, you know, most people can get in. Our 13 minute film did not make the cut. Like you said, there's definitely versions of it. And this is why we had to make multiple versions. One, because the 13 minute was too long for the 10 minute limit. Even in asking for, could you please let us turn this 13 minute one to only three minutes longer? <laughs> uh, no, please. You know, we like to have it here. So, okay. And that goes with a lot of film festivals. You know, they have time limits and that's how things are. Gotcha. And uh, we had to make this 10 minute version. You know, we changed it up. Not too much, but we changed it up definitely. And that was our first screening other than class. It was the undergraduate student film festival. It was a great screening, and I think Janae can take it away from a longer version for film festivals outside of Nova and, like, you know, sending it across the country, maybe even the world. <laughs> for everything that I'm about to say here, there's not really a class <laughs> that you can take that teaches you how to do film distribution, unfortunately. But for the most part, and this kind of just has to do with everything related to filmmaking in general or any creative medium. You just have to go out and do it and experience it yourself. So everything that I've learned from film distribution has been through distributing my first short film, She Had a Dream. And Tara Chadwick, who was my co-producer on the film and who also worked for as the curator of exhibitions at History Fort Lauderdale, she helped a lot in that process of distributing the film because I was a junior in college and I was still in school. I had no idea what I was doing <laughs> whatsoever. But we just found this website called filmfreeway.com and we uploaded the project on there and then we searched up film festivals on the website. It's the best way of looking for film festivals to submit to because the search engine is very refined. If you want to submit to only film festivals about the environment, then you can search up environmental film festivals and then they have themes about the environment. There are horror film festivals, there are historical film festivals, et cetera, et cetera. It's just a very exciting site to be on. Now, another part of the process that they don't really tell you about is that for a lot of these film festivals, if not all of them, you have to pay to submit. And there's no guarantee that you'll get into the festival. But it's still a whole lot cheaper than renting out just one screen at a theater in order to distribute your film the traditional way. Sure. Because in a lot of ways for the traditional way, you would need to have a lot of money. You usually would have to be backed by a studio that would have a lot of money to help you distribute that film. But since we were self-distributing it, we had to raise the money on our own. We would also have to contribute our own funds to distributing the film to get it on as many screens as possible. And the logistics for 
distributing our film through film festivals are kind of just limited to one spreadsheet with multiple pages and multiple links to at least 25 film festivals at this point that we've entered in. I'm not too sure in the numbers for that, but it's been an interesting process and kind of just hearing back from film festivals, especially the ones that we've been accepted for. It's just been overwhelmingly very positive, which is great. And it's been a wild ride trying to distribute this film. I'm so glad that we were accepted into the Fort Lauderdale International Film Festival. That was actually the very first acceptance that we got once we started distributing the film through filmfreeway.com. And of course, we recently had our premiere earlier this month where we were able to screen the film for our friends and family and members of the community and also Elijah and his friends and family as well. They came out to support the film. And all of our hard work in trying to get the film out there, all the promotions that we did, because we also ran a little promotional campaign on campus. I don't know if anyone has kind of just noticed all the flyers (laughs) beforehand. (laughs) It's just been really great. And I can't even find the words to describe how grateful I am for the support for this film, how grateful we are for everyone's support. We definitely saw those flyers and emails and such, because that's how we got interested in the project. I should also say that Gracie and Bianca were in a class of mine earlier in the year, and I sort of saw a little bit about it, but it was good to see that it got completed and was being sent out. So you're talking about distributing it, and I wonder, who do you think of as your main audience for this kind of documentary? I know in the trailer, at least probably the film as well, you know, Professor Charles Zeldin from the NSU Department of Humanities and Politics talks about younger voters and their importance in elections. And would you say that's who you were really targeting as your audience? Yeah, I will definitely say that that was our our intended target audience. Um, Also, Gen Z millennials, because particularly the younger demographic, they're not necessarily involved or interested in the political process, or they tend to be apathetic about it or not well-informed. Um, so our intention was to, again, get them to feel the excitement and to get involved and to participate in the political process by watching the film and ultimately motivate them, basically, mm-hmm. um, to get involved in their communities and to make a difference. So, yeah, that was our target demographic. And is it fair to say that that was Manley's target audience as well? Was he really trying to energize young voters in his campaign? Yeah, there was a huge reach within his campaign to really kind of just get out the youth. Um, There were multiple parts in the film where he addresses young voters specifically. Also, Jesse within the film talks about how this is our future. It's very important for us to participate in elections, but more importantly, local elections, and to start to get involved early within your life because you know, this is your future that you are talking about. It's important to be informed. And I feel like within this film, we talk about multiple different ways that one can get involved within their community. And I guess I I sort of want to hear maybe from each of you on this. Do you think of yourselves as advocates specifically for Mr. Manley? Is the idea of doing a documentary something where you feel you have to kind of be neutral? Like, is is that part of being a documentarian? 
do you feel like it's okay to be a documentarian, but also to say, no, like this is someone you should vote for? You know, I think we struggle with that a lot. <laughs> um, it's, you know, you're right about documentarians, right? You know, I, ideally you want to show a document, it's documenting something, you know, it's not something you're creating or wanting to like change for yourself. However, and we learned this in documentary class as well, at least I did for sure, the fact that you can definitely be biased in documentaries. You have a goal in a documentary, you show one side, you know, vote for this person because you can do this and that. Regarding Elijah Manley, I would personally say, or I think we, I can speak for all of us, that we do not want to advocate to go vote for him, you know, especially when it's on a, a local scale. It was district-wide for East Broward. It was difficult to not go to that route because this story was about Elijah, but it was about a man who is young, queer, black, and running for Florida politics. And that is a story that we have someone who's going against the odds. And that was a story you wanted to follow. And he is that subject for that story. So when things would come up for, especially in editing, when we were like trying to do trailers for the documentary, it's not a trailer for Elijah. We're not saying go vote for Elijah. We are trying to say you should go vote. You should be active. Especially as a young person, it definitely matters to you, you know, just as much as everyone else. Maybe even more because it is your future that you are underrepresented in. However, when Elijah came up in the sense of he's running and he's currently running and we're currently making decisions. For example, our GoFundMe. We had to make decisions to GoFundMe, for example. Okay, our movie poster is a clear answer for what, we, what image we put for the GoFundMe. Oh, but the movie poster has Elijah's face on it. What if people want to give us money because they see Elijah and want to support him and not the documentary? We don't want to mislead anyone. And I think that's a good example of the documentary itself. We don't want people to ideally vote for Elijah specifically just for them to vote in any kind of politics, not just their local district-wide elections or special elections, but also like national, statewide just engagement even in the community for not even having to vote, but just being engaged in politics in the sense of being aware of what's going on. And just like all the young people we were following, being active in your community. Another thing that I kind of want to add to that is that we worked really hard to make sure that this was not a campaign film, but a film about a campaign, Mm -hmm. or at least not your typical campaign film. Because... For a lot of campaign films, there are a lot of tropes that happen. They get cheesy at times, and they kind of just follow the similar story paths, like beat for beat. But for our film, there are particular moments that happen that you wouldn't necessarily see in other campaign films or other films about campaigns as well. And I don't want to give away too much because when it does happen... And you kind of see when it happens that it's like, wow, I didn't expect that to happen, (laughs) essentially, (laughs) because we wanted to show all sides of Elijah and what he represents without necessarily saying, oh, and this is why you should go vote for him. (laughs) Because talking about a subject that is as heavy as politics and being involved within the political system We believe that Elijah's story was kind of just a way for people to hear his experiences and what he went through and identify them with their own experiences 
and hopefully inspire them to get involved. Another aspect to this that I kind of want to add to, there was a moment that happened during Elijah's campaign and we were all trying to decide whether or not to include it within the film. And I also consulted with two other people on whether or not we should include this moment in the film or even ask directly about it. And so after having these conversations, we kind of just decided that for the sake of the project and also the timeless element of it, that we shouldn't include this detail within the film because we don't have the full story or all of the information behind it. Mm -hmm. And it kind of just really made me think about this project in a way where like it could be five years from now, it could be 20 years from now, where you have people that are sitting down there watching this film and they get the general gist of the story. For all the details that we kind of just talked about, the ones that are included within the film, the ones that we decided not to put in the film, they're either in there or not in there for a reason, if that makes sense. You know, of course, when you're kind of just writing history, you have to put together a story within the medium that would just make sense at the end of the day and feel timeless. And another aspect to our film is that we talk a lot about current events and there were lots of obstacles and trying to figure out how to cover these current events in a way where it would feel timeless in the future, where others would still be able to identify with you know, the moment that we're having right now in this country, in the state of politics, and also how Elijah is reacting to those events in real time as well. So I feel like that was one of the boundaries that we were kind of just facing with covering the story as well with, you know, not only Elijah as a person and what he pursues, but also how to kind of just cover these topics in a very informative way for it to make sense within the context of the film. Like that sounds exactly like the kind of things that I think is hard to convey to students sometimes in a writing class, that all writing is this kind of selection of details, right? That you can't be clear and comprehensive. Like you can't say everything. And in that selection of what you do say, you know, you are conveying a narrative, you are drawing attention to things. And I think that is just a great responsibility of any communicator. Thinking of it as a selection, selective details, just, I definitely write too much if I do try to write. <laughs> like, I'll go ahead and write, like, so much on, on every detail of every shot of everything. I'm trying to write a script right now, and I go to Professor Bordina, by the way, uh, the professor from our documentary filmmaking class. I'm doing something under him now, and he's like, okay, you don't put this in the script. This is too much. Can you just, I mean, you don't have to show this part, this, is and that. So that's a very good approach to what you just said. Sometimes I think we have to sort of trust readers or trust viewers that they're smart enough to connect certain dots mm. and that you don't want it to simply be a, here's how you should be responding to this. You have to let them figure that out on their own. Yeah. Are there just things that we might not know? Like you talked a little bit about the costs, but do you know how much time has gone into this production in terms of hours on task? Yeah. Like, is that even calculable at this point? <laughs> No. It's like we started working on the documentary the last fall and then 
we've been we have been working on it since the beginning of this year, basically wrapped up I wanna say like late July. <laughs> so I would mm-hmm. say like at least hundreds of hours. The only record we have is the actual footage we have. Mm-hmm. Like that amount of time must be like included. As well as the agendas and the meetings we would have for both editing and just trying to figure out what are we gonna do. Which Janae has in Google Docs for our Google Drive. We just meet up virtually in person. Even in like this documentary being done, work there's still work to do in the sense of like, hey guys, we need to apply here. Hey guys, you know this promotional flyer we need to make because you know we don't have anyone to make it for us or any funds for it. So yeah, for sure, I would say I think the time span because people would make fun of uh, the fact that it's like a, an actual baby. It's about nine months in production. <laughs> post-production until we had the final actual documentary that we submitted to most festivals so yeah that's exactly how long what hours in those times too many yeah. and did you have to clear any like uh, intellectual property rights you have music in the trailer did you get that from a certain source did you have to ask someone to you know, create that for you are there any issues that you ran into just in terms of what you could or couldn't show just based on intellectual property so most of the songs are from epidemic sound and with websites like Epidemic Sound, it's very easy to gain a license for the music. I mean, you still have to pay, so there's that. But they usually don't give you any issues after you use it. Of course, we looked at a lot of free-to-use stock music to try to include with the film. And we just spent so much time trying to select music. I remember one particular meeting where we would kind of just play each other songs. And for a lot of the songs, at least one person or all three of us were like, no, or eh. And (laughs) when it comes to your music taste in general, I feel like we're all very particular about that aspect. But other than the music, for a lot of the footage, for documentary filmmaking specifically, there is a clause under copyright law for fair use. Mm-hmm. And so because we, within the film, we didn't use a lot of the footage that wasn't ours more than, I'd say, like 15 to 20 seconds, at most, it would fall within that protection of fair use. Sure. And of course, we would credit that footage at the end of the film. So kind of just having that there, like there's the footage that we've shot, and then there's the footage that you know, the archival footage from the school board meetings, from mm-hmm. um, Florida State Legislature hearings and meetings and news footage as well. We did go in contact with a news organization and we still haven't heard back from them <laughs> about one of the clips. But for a lot of documentary filmmakers, there's an option for they can use footage as long as it's, you know, covered under fair use and they don't necessarily know the ins and outs about it. And I don't blame them because it is a little bit confusing, but I feel like more people should just read up and know about it because it is a protection that you can use under copyright law for the future. Sure. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the documentary film Tarnation, but I do remember hearing like it cost $800 to make the film because it was basically a bunch of home movies pieced together with other you know footage that the filmmaker had created, but it cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to get the rights to the music that was captured in the background. So that is certainly an important consideration. 
And yes, you know, people do need to be educated about fair use, but it's very easy for copyright holders to just delay that process or make it more difficult than it should be. Yeah. And a lot of companies, distribution companies are very hesitant to claim fair use. They'd rather you know, get something signed off that says, yes, there won't be any issues in the future. Is there anything you can say that you learned during this process that you kind of wish you knew when you started? Or is there advice that you now have for aspiring student filmmakers? And I'd love to hear from each of you, so don't be shy. I know for sure, personally, I didn't expect this to happen. The day before we all met up for this project, I would not think I'd be here today. Right, like I, I have more of a you know creative approach towards film or even commercial way of um, shooting things visually. Janae has more of a historical perspective and, and interest in films, with you know more like documentaries. And Graciel definitely has had a lot of experience in shooting for our previous production classes and doing more documentary styles or you know news package styles. And it doesn't have to be exactly what you are looking for. Not that I was too passionate about documentaries to begin with, but now I can say I am, after working with these people that I'm so glad to have been able to meet. This was a fun ride. <laughs> so that one project in class <laughs> that you could BS just to pass, <laughs> you are paying to be here. <laughs> you know, you are putting in the time to be there. Take advantage of that and run with it. It would be my advice. Definitely. I would say my advice, particularly for a student, will be to definitely put in the hard work and do the heavy lifting in pre-production, you know, preparation, 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 because that definitely makes a difference during the production process and ultimately in post-production. So once you have everything set up and coordinated, that's you. That's a, that's a huge part of the process. So definitely doing the research and making sure that you know, you're ready fully before you even begin the project. Good advice. That is good advice. Yeah, yeah. I wish I would have thought of that. <laughs> really good. Yeah. And first off, I kind of want to start with what I've learned. The first thing is use the boom mic, please. Learn how to use it. Use a boom microphone, please. Just <laughs> even if you have to pull up a couple YouTube videos, go to Professor Bordino, talk with your peers about learn how to use a boom microphone. Second of all, for the stories that you want to tell or the stories that you feel are kind of just lacking out there that don't really exist, well, if you're a filmmaker, and spoiler alert, you're going to have to go out and create those stories yourself. <laughs> I have never went to school for film. I've pretty much have just been self-taught my entire life. But from all of the resources that I've kind of just hold on oh this is how you make a movie this is how you make a film i really didn't see a specific process that i would be able to identify or associate with so i kind of just learned inevitably that you would only be able to truly learn how to create films if you go out there and just make them yourselves there's never going to be a right moment or a right opportunity for you to create something you're just going to have to go out there and do it and hope for the best and know that you can always redo it and redo it over and over again. God knows how many versions of this film exist <laughs> and the few versions that will probably never see the light of day. But kind of just keep in mind that 
there's never going to be a right time for you to finish that project and you should just go ahead and finish it and see how it goes and see where it takes you. Also, never underestimate your friends or the people that you surround yourself with. There are people out there who are willing to help mm. and kind of just grant them the opportunity to help you whenever they can. That sounds like a great approach, thinking about how to both learn and to involve others and kind of share what you know, but also learn from others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how can others learn about this project? Like, where can they go to learn about the film or support the film? Are there kind of future opportunities to view it? So we're working on the future opportunities (laughs) for others to watch the film. We're still in the middle of our festival run for the film. So hopefully it'll be playing in a cinema or a film festival near you if you don't live inside the state of Florida. Um, (laughs) If you live on campus, we are working on getting a campus screening for the film very soon. That can come as soon as January. So please be on the lookout for that. And we do have a link tree where you can sign up for updates. That's at linktree slash hop22. Or you can just look up the Halls of Power Elijah Manley and it should come up on Google, which is a really cool aspect about making a film, especially if it's on IMDb. Sure. It's that. <laughs> yeah. And even on the GoFundMe, you just look up on the search bar, the Halls of Power, and I'm pretty sure I just looked it up. It's the third one <laughs> that pops up. If not, just put documentary in both the Google search and the GoFundMe. We just want to be able to, as Janae said, we're still in the film festivals run. So we want to be able to afford to do all those application fees and, and all the time put in and all the work and effort and pay Janae back for everything, everything she's applied for so far. <laughs> Yeah, and like Janae said, hopefully we do have screenings coming up. You can sign up in that link tree. We can send it through. And just share, discuss. That's the point of the documentary, you know? Just go out there, get involved. If watching a 40-minute documentary is how you start, then go for it. Yeah. I'll definitely take the next opportunity I have to actually see the whole film. And, of course, to track you guys and you know see your future projects, right? Hopefully, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it has just been great talking with the three of you. So thank you so much for coming in. And we just look forward to hearing more about your project. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you you for having us. We appreciate it. We thank you all for tuning in to this episode of The Writer's Edge. And we hope you tune in next time. You can submit your own podcast to be featured on ours. And you can even submit your own stories about the Writing Center or any questions that you may have. If you'd like more information about the Writing Center itself, visit our website at nova.edu forward slash WCC. You can also reach out to us at WCC at nova.edu or 954-262-4644. Thank you again for tuning into the Writer's Edge, and we'll be back on your airwaves real soon.